uh, when we all come back from Taiwan, we'll start volume four, you know, following in the Buddha's footsteps. And that uh, starts with a few in-depth chapters about refuge and what the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha are. And uh, then it goes into the path in common um, with the Theravada tradition, with the Pali tradition, and especially the 37 harmonies with awakening. So we'll be doing a lot on that. But the, the, after refuge, it talks about the three higher trainings, okay? So ethical conduct, concentration, and wisdom. 37 uh, harmonies with awakening come under wisdom, under uh, the concentration, backing up. Then we'll have the teachings from uh, Maitreya's text and Asanga's text, How to Cultivate Serenity. And then in the chapters on sila, or ethical conduct, we'll talk about the monastic precepts. So it will be quite interesting, I think. Huh? Okay, but we're still on Buddha nature. No problem being on Buddha nature for a long time. So let's remember the visualization. Let's cultivate our motivation. So while we continue to uh, think of ourselves as little old me who can't do everything right (laughs) or who is good at this but not good at that, yeah, a little old me that wants uh, to be recognized and appreciated. That doesn't want criticism. So what we think of as little old me with innumerable faults, actually underneath all of that, or we could say within all of that, there's the potential to become a fully awakened Buddha. So understanding that is important so that we want, so that we aspire to actualize the path. 
If we don't uh, think that we can change, then we don't engage in practice. And when we don't practice, we don't get anywhere. And similarly, when we think, I'm little old me, then everybody else becomes little old me. People who are full of faults, who can't do things very well, who are making a mess of the world. And when we have that kind of view of other living beings, then it's difficult to generate love and compassion for them because they don't seem very appealing at that time. And when we lack love and compassion for them, then we're unable to develop bodhicitta. So you can see that the lack of understanding our Buddha nature is really a a big hindrance for ourselves to practice the path. In so many ways, it uh, hinders us. That uh, view of putting ourselves down, or not necessarily putting ourselves down, but just thinking that you know, we have a very limited view of what human potential is. We can't see beyond uh, the people that we see in society today. So again, that view of others, you know, deprecating them. You would think it would harm others, but it doesn't. That view harms us. It inhibits our practice. It inhibits our Buddha potential from growing and being exposed. So spend a minute contemplating that you have the Buddha potential and all other sentient beings do as well. And then see if that helps you to generate some compassion for yourself and for others. Compassion in the sense that all the suffering that we experience and that those around us experience Uh, doesn't have to exist. It exists because we don't see our potential and so we don't do what's necessary to progress on the path. And seeing that sentient beings have that potential but don't use it, then that's a cause to have compassion for them. And from compassion, then, bodhicitta, the wish to attain full awakening in order to benefit them, becomes uh, important. So take a minute and 
Make that your motivation. You know, when we think of people, we think there's a real person there. Yeah? So there's an I in every one of us who is the Buddha nature or has the Buddha nature. Don't you feel like that? Yeah? There's a person, a real person. And you think the potential to become a Buddha, one aspect is the emptiness of the mind. The other aspect is the clear light nature of the mind. Okay. The body is not the Buddha potential because it has its own continuum. The worms have lunch. So in that Buddha potential, between the emptiness of the mind and the clear light nature of the mind, are either of those the person? Who is the person who has this Buddha potential. Does that make you feel a little bit weird inside? Yeah, that's good. That feeling weird is good. It means we're beginning to understand emptiness. You know? Like, okay, there's a clear light nature, there's the emptiness, but what in the world is the person? Yeah. And then we think, oh, but there's a person, this life. But the Buddha nature comes is uh, beginningless. Remember the continuity? It's beginningless and it's uninterrupted. Yeah, And it comes from the past that way, it goes into the future that way. Does the person, does who I am now go into the future? Are any of the people that I see around me, are you going to be in your future life exactly who you are now? No. Yeah. And yet this feeling that there's a real person there is so strong. But we begin to see how, what an inaccurate feeling that is. 
that there's nothing you can pinpoint. Okay, just a little detour into emptiness that I thought might be interesting. Okay, so we're on page 337, the section that says, Are we already Buddhas? Okay, now I'm sure you've heard, because I've heard, well, we are already Buddhas. Yeah, there's the Buddha inside of us, you know. The Buddha with the three kayas, you know, with this infinite compassion, fantastic wisdom, that's all inside of me, ready to go. I just need to take the wrapper off. Yeah? So it's, it's quite easy to have that, that idea, and, and we hear that, you know, people saying that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's see what His Holiness thinks of that idea. In the Tathagatagarbha Sutra, the Buddha explained that each sentient being possesses a permanent, stable, and enduring Tathagatagarbha that is a fully developed Buddha body replete with the 32 signs of a Buddha. That means the Nirmanakaya Buddha, like Shakyamuni Buddha, is there inside. Okay, and the sutra says so. Okay, but a question arises. If an already realized Buddha existed within us, wouldn't we therefore now be ignorant Buddhas? Because we're not omniscient. Yeah, we're ignorant, but... There's that, if we're already Buddha, then we would be ignorant Buddhas. If we were actual Buddhas now, what would be the purpose of practicing the path? There wouldn't be any purpose. You're already a Buddha. If we have the three kayas in there, yeah. So if we were already Buddhas and yet still needed to purify defilements, then wouldn't a Buddha have defilements? Because here we are, you know, we're already Buddhas, but we still need to purify. So then it's a Buddha that has defilements. Okay, if we had a permanent, stable, and an enduring presence, essence, wouldn't that contradict the teachings on selflessness and instead resemble a self or soul asserted by the non-Buddhists. Sure sounds like it, doesn't it? Something that's really me, that inherently existent, pure essence that's already a Buddha fully formed in there. That's who I really am. Yeah, you could, you know, that's that's a good selling point. Yeah, people will like that. Okay, so Mahamati expressed these same doubts to the Buddha in the descent to the Lanka Sutra, the Lankavatara Sutra. Okay, here's what Mahamati said. The Tathagatagarbha taught by the Buddha in some sutras is said to be clear light in nature. Remember, clear light can refer to the clear and cognizant 
nature of the mind. It can also refer to the emptiness of the mind. Yeah. Okay. So the in some of the sutras is said to be clear light in nature, completely pure from the beginning, and to exist possessing the 32 signs in the bodies of all sentient beings. If, like a precious gem wrapped in a dirty cloth, yeah, sounds like one of the nine similes. Okay, so if, like a precious gem wrapped in a dirty cloth, the Buddha expressed that tatagatagarbha wrapped in and dirtied by the cloth of the aggregates, constituents, and sources, overwhelmed by the force of attachment, animosity, and ignorance, dirtied with the defilements of conceptualizations and permanent, stable, and enduring. Okay. If that's the Tathagatagarbha, how is it this propounded as Tathagatagarbha, how is it different from the non-Buddhist propounding a self? Mahamati asked the Buddha directly. Good question. So some Tibetan scholars accept the teaching on permanent, stable, and enduring nature literally, saying it is a definitive teaching. <clears throat> so the teachings are uh, divided into definitive and interpretable. Sometimes interpretable is called provisional. <clears throat> the definitive teachings are those on emptiness. Okay. And the interpretable ones uh, are ones on other topics or ones that are on emptiness. Um, but you have what the Buddha said literally, you can't take or what the Buddha said, the words, you can't take literally. You have to interpret what he was actually meaning when he said those words. When you recite the Heart Sutra, no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, is the Buddha saying that these things are not existent? No, he's saying there's no inherently existent, you know, eye, ear, nose, and so on. Okay, so that statement has to be interpreted to actually mean what the Buddha intended. Yeah. As it happened, how the Prasangikas explained that is that earlier in the sutra, the Buddha used the term, I think, inherently or by its own nature, one of those terms meaning, um, you know, inherent existence, and said this is, you know, empty of inherent existence or whatever. I forget which term it is, although we just recited it yesterday. Um, but, okay, uh, so, you know, you can't, no eye, no ear, you, it doesn't mean, you don't take it literally, yeah, you have to understand. And in the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, if you look in them, there's always earlier before those no, no, no passages, something that talks about there's no inherently existent phenomena, Okay. So that's called interpretable. It's also 
call is interpretable because you have to interpret it to understand what the Buddha meant. It's also, the term is sometimes translated as provisional, meaning that this is a teaching that the Buddha gave for people who weren't uh, completely ripe in the Dharma, but it was by teaching that it really helped them. Okay, so provisional. Okay, so, yeah. Yes, it is. No, but I was just using, it's not, it's not provisional, you know, because it has that thing of inherently existent. But I was just using that passage to say if you extracted that passage and took it literally, it wouldn't work. Okay, yeah, but the sutra is definitive. Okay, so sharing the doubts expressed above by Mahamad. Mahamati. Prasangikas say this is an interpretable teaching. They say this not on a whim, but by examining three points. And so these points, um, yeah, they, they come in the whole discussion, like in Lekshe Ningpo, Tsongkhapa's text, um, about the difference between definitive and, and interpretable. Okay. And I think I used them maybe in volume nine, talking about the different tenets. I think I might have had this there. It's, it's somewhere else in the Library of Wisdom and Compassion. I think volume nine. We'll get to it <laughs> someday. <laughs> okay, so the three points. First one, what was the Buddha's final intended meaning when he made this statement. So what was his meaning and his final one? What was he really, really meant? So when speaking of a permanent, stable, and enduring essence in each sentient being, the Buddha's intended meaning was the emptiness of the mind, the naturally abiding Buddha nature, which is permanent, stable, and enduring. Yeah? Because the mind is empty of inherent existence and the defilements are adventitious, Buddhahood is possible. So you need those two factors, the mind being empty of inherent existence and the fact that the defilements are adventitious. Yeah, If the defilements weren't adventitious, we'd be in big trouble. Okay? <clears throat> And you would probably also uh, assert that the mind was inherently existent if you said that. Okay, then the second point, what was the Buddha's purpose for teaching this? Okay, so the Buddha didn't mean, you know, this literally, that there was a, a, a Buddha with the 32 signs in us already. Um, yeah, so there was an intended meaning, but what was his purpose in saying that? Yeah. So the Buddha taught a permanent, stable, enduring essence, complete with the 32 signs, in order to calm some people's fear of selflessness and to gradually lead non-Buddhists to the full realization of suchness. Okay, so there's that's the Buddha's motivation. That's why the Buddha did this. 
Why? Well, because some people, when you talk about emptiness, they get terrified. Yeah, they think you're saying that nothing exists and they're going to disappear and this feeling of an I that they're so sure is there isn't there and they just freak out, you know. And when they freak out, then, you know, they stop practicing. It's too scary. Or, yeah, they... um What was I going to say? Yeah, they, they, they think either nothing exists or, um, yeah, that, that, I mean, that's their, their basic fear. Okay. Okay, so, and so that's the, um, yeah, that's the viewpoint of the non-Buddhists. Yeah, so not just the non-Buddhists at the Buddhist time, but, you know, when we look at uh, theistic religions, which are the main religions in, in the world, yeah, they all assert a, an inherently existent person. And so if you tell these people that that doesn't exist, and there's no soul, and there's no Atman, you know, people freak. So at present, these people who are spiritually immature feel comfortable with the idea of a permanent essence. The idea of the emptiness of inherent existence frightens them, and they mistakenly think it means that nothing whatsoever exists. They fear that by realizing emptiness, they will disappear and cease to exist. And of course, that's terrifying for people. Yeah. To calm this fear, the Buddha spoke in a way that corresponds with their current ideas. Okay, so he, he's not lying when he says this. Yeah, he has another intention in mind. He has a pur- purpose for saying this, and the purpose is to benefit that group of people. Yeah, so because if they think that the Tathagatagarbha is a permanent, pure essence, then they feel happy, they feel good, they say, oh, this is something, you know, I want to uncover, and then they'll start to practice. And then while practicing, as they purify, as they create merit, then when they're introduced to the teachings on emptiness, uh, they'll begin to understand it, they'll be more receptive for those teachings. So this is, um, so later when they are more receptive, he will teach them the actual meaning. This is similar to the way skillful parents simplify complex ideas to make them comprehensible to young children. And that's what, you know, I mean, one of the the big ways that parents do that is... uh, when kids say, you know, what, what is death? Yeah. And besides the parents really not knowing themselves what the meaning of death is, um, they don't want to scare their kids, even though the parents are scared of death. They don't want to scare the kids by making the kids think that the people that they love uh, are going to die and leave them. So the parents say, well, dead people are just going to sleep for a long time. Yeah, well, you said, you told something like that 
What were you told when you were little, when you asked, what does it mean to be dead? Oh, that, oh, okay, sorry, yeah, I forgot about that one. Yeah, you continue to live, because there, there's a permanent soul, and the soul goes to heaven, and you're the same person in heaven that you are now. And you meet all your relatives, who are the same age as they were when they died. Yeah, so they, you know, somebody who died as a baby never gets older, in heaven, and somebody who's old is just all the time old. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah? Ha, ha. Yeah? I mean, as soon as you assert a heaven, then you have to answer these questions. Okay? So, yeah, so people think of all this kind of stuff. Okay, so that's the Buddha's purpose for, for teaching that. And you can see that it helped those people. Okay. Some of us actually, you know, when you think about it, when you first met the Dharma, or even now, are you totally ripe and receptive to every aspect of the Dharma? <laughs> oh, some of us, you know, we hear about some teaching and we go, what? What? How can I believe that? Yeah, we're full of doubt and we're full of wrong conceptions. Yeah, and so uh, somehow, you know, our teachers are faced with the task of freeing ourselves from that, but they have to do it very tactfully. Otherwise, we just, you know, run down the hill screaming because we want to hear light and light and love and bliss. Don't we? Don't we? Yeah. And um, praying to, to God is somehow so comforting. It means that there's somebody, somebody who's supposedly wise, um, <laughs> you know, in charge of this whole thing. And so, uh, like you were saying, you know, we feel, um, you know, we want predictability, we want stability, we want to know what's going on. We want to think that somebody is behind this whole thing and knows what's going on and that there's actually some plan. <laughs> yeah? You know, God decided this. It's in God's plan. We don't know what God's plan is, but, you know, it's so comforting to think like that, isn't it? Yeah. Somebody once came to me, um, one of her relatives had just died, and she said, you know, Buddhism is not a very comforting religion when somebody dies. Yeah. She said they, they just die in that the body, you know, just decays and yeah, and then they get reborn. How is that? And, you know, that's really not, and they get reborn according to their karma. And if they've done a lot of negative deeds, they're going to wind up in a lower realm, you know. And, and she said, you know, it's so, it's difficult in these times when you need emotional comfort to have a Buddhist view, she said, you know. And, and, you know, the, uh, having a theistic view, somehow very comforting. I have no idea what's going on, but God knows. 
Yeah, my mom used to say that when things happened. God knows why this <laughs> she, she meant it in a different way. You know? God knows why you kids did this. <laughs> yeah. There was this man uh, in Singapore that was telling you that he wasn't sure he wanted to stay Buddhist anymore because as Buddhists we stay uh, trapped in samsara forever. <laughs> Whereas if he would turn Christian, then he would just go to heaven. Yeah. As if it was just as simple as that. That, right. Right. Yeah, it's quite interesting as if people think that the reality of what's going to happen to them depends on what they believe will happen to them. You know, so if I believe in God and I believe in going to heaven, I'm going to go in heaven. If I am a Buddhist and I believe in rebirth, then that's what's going to happen to me. Yeah. One of my friends told me um, that somebody, he's a teacher, and somebody came to him one time and said, you know, I'm really afraid if, if I uh, give up if I uh, don't believe the, what the Buddha taught, then I'm going to go to Buddha's tell. But if I continue to believe uh, Christianity, uh, then I'm going to go to Christ Christian hell. No, I think it was the opposite. If if I'm if I believe in Buddhism, I'm going to go to Christian hell. And but if I believe in Christianity, I'm going to go to Buddha's tell. So what do I believe? Yeah, and I thought that was so interesting because the person is believing both of these things and mixing it all together and causing himself a lot of pain. Okay, third point. What logical inconsistencies arise from taking this statement that there's a permanent, stable, enduring self with the 32 uh, signs of the Buddha inside of every sentient being? What are the logical inconsistencies uh, that arise from taking this statement literally? So accepting this teaching on a permanent, stable, and an enduring Buddha nature at face value contradicts the definitive meaning of emptiness and selflessness explained by the Buddha in the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras. Okay, that's it. It contradicts that. Now, why should we believe the perfection of wisdom sutras? You know, is is that just some other thing that the Buddha said? Maybe for people who, uh, you know, are still immature and and they like hearing about emptiness. It makes them feel good because, uh, you know, they're just going to kind of disappear after they die or, you know, uh, get reborn. So, you know... The, yeah, they have nothing to be afraid of. They're not going to cease. Isn't that just another theory that somebody's making up? Why should we believe that? So what do you say to that? You can prove emptiness through reasoning and logic. Yeah. Yeah, you can prove emptiness using reasoning and logic. Yeah? Proving a creator God, you cannot prove with the reasoning and logic. Okay, so why should we believe what the Buddha said in the Prajnaparamita Sutras? Because when we test them ourselves and think about those teachings deeply, 
Yeah, they yeah they can pass the the fire of uh, reasoning. Uh, they can make sense. So that that's you know now we know why, if we didn't before, why his holiness is constantly stressing using reasoning and logic to figure out what we believe in, yeah, and how important it is, so that. Uh, if some, you know, this is the problem that the col- uh, calamitous, the columnists, okay, in the Kalamas Sutra, so many different people, they aren't calamities. Um, so, many, so many different quote, quote, teachers were coming there and, you know, would teach something and everybody would believe that. Then the next guy would teach something else and they'd believe that. And they were totally confused. They didn't know who to believe. Okay, so, and then the Buddha said, okay, here, I'm going to give you this teaching. And you think about it and you see if it makes sense and you test it out and you decide from your own experience. Yeah, so that's really, I mean, that's really good, isn't it? There's no threat that you're going to go to hell if you don't believe, and you know you sh- and nobody tells you you should believe because it's written in this and that book. So don't ask too many questions. Just believe. Yeah, nobody says that when you come to Buddhism, do they? Okay. So in the uh, Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, the Buddha sent forth many reasonings that refute the view of inherent existence. Furthermore, if this statement were accepted literally, the Buddhist teachings would be no different from those of non-Buddhists who assert a permanent self. The emptiness of inherent existence, which is the ultimate reality and the natural purity of the mind, exists in all sentient beings without distinction. Okay, every single sentient being. Yeah, including Donnie, including, who were you mentioning this morning? Somebody was... Hmm? Fonny Willis. No, not Fonny Willis. Anyway, whoever it is you don't like. Who? Vladimir, Across the board, all those people. <laughs> okay, so based on the emptiness of inherent existence existing in all sentient beings without distinction, it is said that a Buddha is present. Okay, so because the Buddha nature is there, People say the Buddha is present. What is this an example of? Getting the yeah, the result, the cause being given the name of the result. Okay. So, I mean, there's no Buddha present yet, but people say it. There's no flowers growing, but on the basis of planting seeds, we say we planted flowers. Uh, Same thing. Based on this, it is said that a Buddha is present, but the ultimate reality of a Buddha does not exist in sentient beings. Okay, why not? 
They just said the emptiness of inherent existence exists in every sentient being. Why are they saying now that the ultimate reality of a Buddha does not exist in sentient beings? Nobody read ahead. Then why? The ultimate nature of a Buddha's mind is undefiled and purified completely, where the ultimate nature of a sentient being's mind is still defiled. Yeah. Why? Why? The ultimate nature is emptiness, which is pure from the beginning. Right, but it's the emptiness of a defiled mind. So there is a difference between the emptiness of a defiled mind, still empty, compared to the emptiness of an undefiled, purified Buddha's mind. Yeah. Okay. People got that? Okay, so while... um, While Buddhas and sentient beings are the same in that the ultimate nature of their mind is emptiness, that ultimate reality is not the same because one is the ultimate reality of a Buddha's mind, the nature Dharmakaya, and the other is the ultimate reality of a defiled mind. If we said that the nature Dharmakaya existed in sentient beings, then we would also have to say that the wisdom dharmakaya, which is one nature with it, existed in sentient beings. Okay, That would mean that sentient beings were omniscient, because that's what the wisdom dharmakaya makes one. Okay, So if you said that the, the emptiness of, of a Buddha and the empty is in the is the same as, or is in the sentient beings, yeah, then sentient beings would have the nature dharmakaya, and then because it would also, it would also have to have what is not one nature with it, which is the wisdom dharmakaya, and then that would mean sentient beings were Buddhas. Yeah, are you a Buddha? Okay, that would mean that sentient beings were omniscient, which certainly is not the case. (laughs) Similarly, if the abandonment of all defilements existed in ordinary sentient beings, there would be nothing to prevent them from directly perceiving the natural purity of their minds. They would directly realize emptiness. Yeah, sentient beings do not directly realize emptiness in their present. I mean, ordinary sentient beings don't, okay? Uh, one time, Lama Zopa was teaching it at, uh, at Vajrapani, and one monk was there. Uh, he was a rather plump monk, and he, uh, he said to Rinpoche, you know, well, there's these people who say that we're Buddhas already, you know, and, uh, you know, our, our tradition doesn't agree with that. Why not? You know, what's wrong with saying that? Aren't we Buddhas already? So Rinpoche said, okay, let's say that in a future life, you're going to be born as a woman. And as a woman, you get pregnant. So in the future, you're going to be a pregnant woman. Does that mean that right now, you're a pregnant woman? And this monk said, no, I'm just a fat monk. (laughs) 
Yeah. But that's, you know, it's a good analogy, isn't it? If you were going to be that in the future, which would mean that's what you are right now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, some people say the Dharmakaya with two purities, the natural purity and the purity of the abandonment of defilements, so this is talking about the nature of Dharmakaya, exists in the mind stream of sentient beings. But because sentient beings are obscured, they don't perceive it. Okay? So, you know, the the emptiness of the mind, the true cessations of the mind, all that exists in sentient beings' mind streams already. If that were the case, then, yeah, but, but those, it's already there, but those sentient beings' minds are obscured. Okay? So His Holiness says, if that is the case, then whose mind is purified and who attains the freedom that is the purity of sentient beings? Because, if you look at it, if sentient beings had the Dharmakaya and were a Buddha, then you're saying that the Buddha's mind needs to be purified? Or if you say... Uh, the um, the the nature dharmakaya is in sentient beings. Then why would the nature of why would sentient beings' minds need to be purified? Okay, so e- either way, when it says whose mind's getting purified, yeah, is it a Buddha's mind that's getting purified? Well, that doesn't make sense because the Buddha's mind is already pure. If it's a sentient being's mind. Yeah, but it has the nature dharmakaya, then, yeah, what's the use of purifying? Okay, so if sentient beings already possess the dharmakaya, there is no need for them to practice the path and purify their minds, because from the beginningless time, their minds have been free of adventitious defilements. Yeah? So when you're reading this, you can see the arguments that are being used, you know, to to really prove and, and hone us in so we get a, a much clearer idea of what Buddha nature is. Because we see, oh, if you say this, 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 then that can be refuted because you have all these logical inconsistencies. Yeah. You would you would have to say that that fat monk was already a pregnant woman, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Okay. So if that were the case, then whose mind is purified, and who attains the freedom that is purity of all defilements? If sentient beings already possess the dharmakaya, there is no need for them to practice the path and purify their minds. Because from beginningless time, their minds have been free of adventitious defilements. Yeah. And if they're already Buddhas, then again, no reason to purify the mind. Okay, so this, the assertion that a Buddha complete with the 32 signs exists within the continuums of all sentient beings echoes the theistic theory of an eternally pure, unchanging self, doesn't it? And that theory is what 
people hang on to. It's um, something very emotionally uh, supportive for people, I think. Yeah? Doesn't make any sense, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah? I mean, we're... We think that we're rational beings, but I think we're so often governed by our emotions. And what makes us feel good? Then we develop a, a explanation why that's the proper thing. Yeah. And then we say we're using reasoning and logic. Yeah. If the 32 signs were already present in us, it would be contradictory to say that we still need to practice the path to create the causes for them. Something exists, you don't need to create the causes for it. It already is there. If someone says that they are already, the causes are already in us, in an unmanifest form, and they just need to be made manifest, aha, who says that? The Samkhyas, okay? That remembers this, resembles the Samkhya notion of arising from self. You know, remember what Chandrakirti uh, or Nagarjuna in his first verse in the Karikas, nothing whatsoever at any time is born from self, other, both, and, or causelessly. Okay, so that would resemble the Samkhya notion of arising from self, because even though existing, this Buddha would need to be produced again in order to be made manifest. So if something that exists needs to be produced again to become manifest, then there's endless production, because it, after that it still needs to be produced again to exist and still needs and. Okay, so this is one of the defects of asserting uh, production from self. Production from self means that the, the cause is present at the time of the result, yet still produces that result. But, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Causes always come before results. So Nagarjuna and his followers soundly refuted production from self. Okay, so now the sutra continues with the Buddha's response to Mahamati. Mahamati, my teaching of the Tathagatagarbha is not similar to the, the propounding of a self by non-Buddhists. Mahamati, the Tathagatas, 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 Tagatas. Anyway, the Buddhas, Arhats, the perfectly completed Buddhas, indicated the Tathagatagarbha with the meanings of the words emptiness, limit of complete purity, nirvana, unborn, signless, wishless, and so forth. Those are all synonyms for emptiness. They do this so that the immature might completely relinquish a state of fear regarding the selfless and to teach the non-conceptual state the sphere without appearance. So here, the non-conceptual state does not mean blank-minded meditation. Yeah, It's referring to when uh, you have a direct realization of emptiness. There's no conceptual 
mind at all functioning at that time. So here we see the Buddha skillfully taught different ideas to different people according to what was necessary at the moment and beneficial in the long term to further them on the path. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the Buddha does this in many situations, and our teachers do this too. And sometimes it's very puzzling to us because one of our you know, Dharma friends will come and say, oh, you know, the teacher just said I should do da-da-da-da-da. And then we think, oh, they want everybody to do that, you know. But, you know, they, they don't necessarily. They said that to that person and to another person. When that, If the other person asks the same question because they have different karma, different personality, and so on, they're going to get a different answer. And then we get confused. Oh, Lama said this to so-and-so and that to so-and-so. And, you know, Lama told, you know, Susie over there to do a thousand nunes. And, and you know, and, and he told Johnny over there, you know, just to, to, to med- meditate on the Lamrim every day. And why, you know? Why? Shouldn't, shouldn't Johnny also do a thousand nunes? Shouldn't Susie meditate on Lama Ram? Mm-hmm. Atan Shah has a, a nice example for that. He says, if somebody's walking along a, a narrow path, well, not so narrow, but, you know, a path, not too wide, and there's a cliff on this side and a cliff on this side, yeah, if, a, if somebody were walking too close to this edge, yeah, and somebody saw that, they'd say, go left, go left. Yeah, but if the person were walking too close to this side, they'd say, go right, go right. So saying different things to different people, but the purpose was to help both of them and protect both of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> we also learn from this that uh, we must think deeply about the teachings, exploring them from various viewpoints, and bring knowledge gained from reasoning and from reading other scriptures to discern their definitive meaning. The purpose of learning about the Buddha nature is to understand that the mind is not intrinsically flawed and that, on the contrary, it can be perfected. It is not just that the mind can be transformed. There is already a part of the mind that allows it, uh, there, that allows it to be purified and perfected. Understanding this gives us great confidence and energy to practice the methods to purify and perfect this mind of ours so that it will become the mind of a fully awakened Buddha. Okay, so that's why the Buddha taught this. Yeah, and you notice, yeah, that this is is to help people practice the path. So the Buddha didn't say, "There's light and love and bliss, and just follow the light in your life." You know, the the Buddha didn't do that. He he taught things that we needed to think about and we needed to put into practice. 
You know, he didn't say, just go and get a lot of blessings and collect a lot of protection cords, you know, and, and, and get a lot of, you know, sit there during a lot of in, uh, initiations. He didn't say that. Uh-huh. Uh, he, he laid out a path. He didn't say, just sit and pray. Buddha, 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 please. I want to become awakened. Please, Buddha. Yeah, please make it happen. I'm going to take a nap now. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, the Buddha, I mean, we, we can get blessings. How do, how do we get blessings? What is a blessing? Yeah. The chief way that the Buddhas help us is by giving us the teachings. It's by hearing teachings that we have the power to transform our mind. It's not by sitting there. And it's not by, you know, taking blessed water and, and these kinds of things. All those things are props and they help. But, you know, alone, they're not going to do it. Okay, the reflection. So first point, what does it mean to say that pristine wisdom abides in the afflictions? Okay, so it's making you remember Okay. What uh, are we already wise Buddhas, but just don't know it? Do Buddhas have afflictions? <laughs> the Buddha said, okay, third question there. Buddha said there is a permanent, stable, and enduring Buddha nature in each of us. What was his final intended meaning in saying this? Okay. And what was his purpose for teaching this? And what logical inconsistencies arise from taking this statement literally? Okay, so these are really good reflection questions. Think about them. Yeah, it's it's important to understand this. Geshe Sona mentioned uh, when when we were studying um, Majjhima Kafatara, um, and, you know, you go through all this thing and, and you're debating all these Buddhists, or non-Buddhists. And we said, Ginla, you know, why? Who believes these crazy theories of the non-Buddhists? Yeah, who believes them? And, <laughs> and Geshe said, well... You know, if some teacher who who teaches this came and taught them, you would probably believe them. Yeah, because unless you think deeply and use reasoning, you know, then the next thing that somebody says that feels good, you believe. Yeah. So this, this is my theory. First, people figure out what they believe, what they want to believe. Then they find a scripture or some reasoning to prove, quote, quote, prove it. Yeah. In other words, we claim to be reasonable, rational people, but mm, not always. <laughs> okay. So next, the next uh, heading, next section called Awareness of Our Buddha Nature Eliminates Hindrances. 
So the sutra of the second turning of the Dharma wheel, or the sutras, plural, of the second turning of the Dharma wheel, state in numerous places that all knowable phenomena are in all ways empty like a cloud, a dream, or an illusion. Why is it then that in the sutras of the third turning of the Dharma wheel, the Buddha, having said this, declared that the Buddha nature is present within beings. Okay, so this is what Maitreya said in uh, Sublime Continuum. Okay. So Maitreya tells us that although the sutras of the second turning characterize the Buddha nature by giving the examples of an illusion and so forth to illustrate the emptiness of the mind, he will explain Buddha nature slightly different in the sublime continuum. So if we're people who like one right answer and don't like seeing things from different perspectives, this drives us crazy. Yeah, we want one right answer, one way to look at it, so I know what this is, now I got it. Okay, One young man came to see me uh, some years ago, and I forget what we were discussing. He, um, he had been practicing in the Theravada tradition, and yeah, maybe he was asking about arhats and you know how arhats compared to Buddhas, some question like that. And so I was responding, and and he said, "Well, that's not what I've heard before, you know, from his Theravada teachers." And I said, you know, different people look at this different ways and they have their reasons for saying this and, and, and so on. And he said, well, which one's right? And I, I, <laughs> I said, well, you know, I believe this one personally, yeah, but you have to think about it and see which one sounds right for you. Okay, don't just believe what I say. And he kept on saying, but t please tell me which one is right. Yeah. And I realized, oh, now I understand. You know, so, you know, you hear different passages about being receptive or not being receptive, the importance of reasoning and logic, the, um, you know, the ability to see things from various perspectives and to see, you know, that some in some situations there is not one right answer, you know. And, uh, yeah, and so, you know, when he was saying that, I said, oh, now I understand what they're talking about when they say talking to people according to, uh, you know, their, their uh, disposition you know, and teaching them according to what they need to hear at that time. Okay, so Maitreya is going to explain the Buddha nature differently in Sublime Continuum than in the Prussian Paramita Sutras. Does that mean that Maitreya doesn't believe in emptiness? Yeah. Wait until you get into to some of the other the, the studies. You have like uh, Vasubandhu. Oh, there's a lot of discussion about Vasubandhu. The the academic people say there's prob there's probably more than one Vasubandhu. The Tibetans say he just lived a long time. And one Vasubandhu, but lived a long time. 
But Vasubandhu wrote the Abhidharma Kosha, okay, which is written from the viewpoint of the Vibhasakas. He wrote a commentary to the Abhidharma Kosha from the viewpoint of the Sautantrikas. So you hear this and then you go, well, which one, which one did he believe? You know, did he change his mind? At first he was a Vibhasaka and then he became a Satantrika. But actually people say that his final view was, was Chitamatran. Yeah, because Asanga was his brother and Asanga, you know, bumped him up and got him to be at least a, have hold the holder of the Mahayana tenets, you know. So, yeah, so w w what do I believe? Yeah, the, the Abhidharma Kosha or the commentary which interprets things differently? Yeah, they're written by the same person. You know, was he lying in there? Yeah, or was he like on acid? <laughs> and so he could, you know, or did he have... Dementia, so when he wrote the commentary, you know, he forgot what he said in the root text. You know, what's going on here? No, that, that's not, not the, none of those reasons. Yeah, I say he was being skillful, you know, for the groups of people who believe, you know, in those tenant systems and who, for believing in those systems, you know, that helps them. Okay, so this is so. Uh, so when Maitreya says that he will explain the Buddha nature slightly different in the sublime continuum, this is a clue implying that he will emphasize the clear light mind being the Buddha nature. This may cause some people to doubt. The Buddha taught emptiness extensively in the second turning, saying that that was the Buddha nature. Yeah, Why in the third turning would he speak about Buddha nature being the clear light mind that has, begin, that has beginninglessly been completely pure and sentient beings? Is there a contradiction between the second and third turnings? Yeah, it sounds like, wait a minute, you know? The difference between the first turning and the second turning was already big enough, you know? But then to the third turning, then he's saying something different again. Okay, so are they contradictory? Maitreya explains that the Buddha spoke of Buddha nature being the clear light mind in order to help us sentient beings overcome five factors that hinder us from developing bodhicitta, realizing emptiness, and attaining Buddhahood. So as we go through these five See if you have any of them. Yeah, and if you do, then you know why the Buddha taught uh, the Buddha nature. Okay. So the first one is discouragement. So these are the five factors that hinder, hinder us from developing bodhicitta, realizing emptiness, and becoming Buddha. Discouragement. Yeah, that's going to be a good hindering factor. Yeah, anybody here ever been discouraged? Yeah? <laughs> okay. Gee, it's a very common thing. <laughs> uh, 
Discouragement makes us believe that awakening cannot be attained. Because we don't know that the Buddha nature exists in us, cynicism and a lack of confidence prevent us from generating bodhicitta. Even before beginning to practice the path, we give up and don't make an effort. That's true, isn't it? When we get discouraged, it's like, yeah, why should I do anything? Uh, you know, and this is when you start skipping sessions, isn't it? One of the reasons for skipping sessions. Why should I, you know, I don't know if I really believe this. And, you know, this all seems contradictory. And I'm just little old me. I can't do anything very good, very well. Yeah, so, yeah, why try? Yeah? I'm going to go out and and uh, plant grass seed. Yeah. Yeah, you do something useful. You think we don't need somebody to plant grass seed out there? I'm going to go out there and all the bumps in the road from from the tires going over it, and you know how it's like a rocky road out there? I'm going to rake all of the the sand and the mud and make a nice flat surface road for everybody to walk on and try on, okay? That I can do. Going to session, useless. I can't become a Buddha anyway. I can't concentrate. I fall asleep. I don't know if I really believe this. Anyway, and I'm sitting in a room and everybody else in that room ha- is in samadhi because I open my eyes uh, you know, and look around, and they're all like this. You know, funny, I open my eyes and look around, and I see a bunch of people like this. <laughs> you know, even chanting prayers, I noticed, you know, some people, they're chanting, they're, they're, they know the prayers by time. You know? Just totally looking around the room, chanting. Yeah, but none of you do that, except I won't mention names. <laughs> but, uh, okay, we better get back on topic. So discouragement, yeah, discourages us. Yeah, and then we just give up. We don't try. Yeah, we get cynical. Okay, second factor that impedes us is having arrogant contempt for those we consider inferior. Anybody have that from time to time? You know, I know the Dharma so well. I'm such a good practitioner. Those people, full of wrong views. How can they possibly believe that? So stupid. Yeah. Okay. So, having arrogant contempt for those we consider inferior comes from not knowing that the Buddha nature exists in others. With derision, we judge and disparage others, abandon love and compassion, and abstain from engaging in the bodhisattva practices. So that's true, you know. If we don't understand that everybody has the Buddha nature, we dream up all sorts of reasons why we're better 
because we really are better, you know. We, we, we need to put on this thing of looking humble, you know, because in, in Buddhism, it's not so good to look arrogant, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that, that's not a trait you want to display. So, you know, you kind of, you look humble, yeah? You look so humble. Oh, I don't know this. I don't know that. Yeah, but in, inside, you know, I'm doing a real good job of being humble. But I'm also showing how smart I am at the same time. Yeah? You can do that at the same time. You know, you know this and you know that. You can answer this question, that question. Yeah. But I really, I really don't know anything. And, you know, I'm just the, the, the little me. Yeah. But you know less than I do. And you're really dumb. Yeah. Too bad you aren't like me. I never, what, what is that? What is, what's the use of doing that? What's it, what's it supposed to indicate? You blow on your hand and you do that to polish gold? Or you blow on, on some other substance and go rub it? Yeah, very interesting. Like, what in the world does that mean? Anyway, you'll find out when you're a Buddha. <laughs> So just be patient. <laughs> okay. So con- arrogant contempt, contempt for those we consider inferior. That's a big problem. Because you, you don't have compassion for people then. Yeah. You're better than them. They're dumb. Yeah. The world is so fortunate to have you in it. Those people are more fortunate to know you. Yeah. Yeah. And you're going to lead them to enlightenment. <laughs> you have a banner. <laughs> you know, like the people who are leading tours do. <laughs> you have the banner. <laughs> you hold it and all these people gather around. And you say, we're going to enlightenment. Come on, crew. Don't be late. <laughs> okay. Okay, then the third one is distorted conceptions. Anybody have that one? Yeah, lots of distorted conceptions. So distorted conceptions incorrectly hold that adventitious defilements are truly existent. Yeah, they exist in the nature of the mind and therefore are impossible to eradicate. Yeah, So these wrong views superimpose true existence on things that are empty of true existence. So they arise from not knowing the essence, the existence of the Buddha nature in all sentient beings. So people who have these distorted conceptions, how do they arise? Because they don't know the existence of the Buddha nature in all sentient beings and infer and interfere with our cultivation of the wisdom correctly realizing reality. Okay. So, lots of distorted conception. Things are really true existent. It's, it's like when you, you know, you do the refutation, and it's like, yeah, I can't find myself. There's no, yeah, there's no inherently existent person. 
Uh, but I'm still there because I just realized emptiness. <laughs> yeah? And I'm going to go tell everybody all about my realization of emptiness. Yeah. And then the Buddha appeared to me. Yeah, Buddha said, Hi. <laughs> I've realized emptiness. You've, I hear you've realized emptiness too. And we'd say, Yes, sir. <laughs> okay, then the fourth factor that impedes us, denigrating the, the true nature. So that means to deny the existence of the Buddha nature or to think the Buddha nature has not been present beginninglessly. Okay? So you're denigrating the, the existence of the Buddha nature. Yeah. So this is, uh, you know, we might say, I don't have the Buddha nature. You know, everybody else may have it, but I don't. You know, that's another way that we make ourselves special and different from other people. Okay, so we, we might say that, or we might say, well, you know, if I've been in samsara beginninglessly, clearly I don't have the Buddha nature beginninglessly because I would have done something positive to get out of samsara by now if I had the Buddha nature. So Buddha nature is something that gets added on to me. Uh, you know, I went to this lama, yeah, and I knelt down and offered a kata, yeah, and a thing of incense. And then the lama put his hands on my head. And I felt electricity going up and down my body. And then I knew I've got it. <laughs> okay. So that person's not denigrating the true nature. <laughs> but, you know, uh, somebody else could come along and say, you know, since when have you had that? You know, the guy may say, well, I haven't always realized emptiness, so I haven't always had the Buddha nature. It's something that just came to me. When that lama touched my head, I got the Buddha nature. It came in. That's what that whole pizzazz going on inside of me when he gave me that blessing. That's what happened, is he gave me the Buddha nature. Now I got it. Okay, but it didn't exist before. Yeah? Yeah? Anybody ever think that? Yeah? Mm -hmm. Okay, then the fifth one, yeah, interfering factor, is self-centeredness. So this makes us biased towards the self Quenching the equanimity that sees self and others as equally valuable. Okay, anybody here see self, have, have self-centeredness that think you're more valuable than everybody else? Yeah. Okay. Well, that shows how ignorant you are because I'm the one who's most valuable. <laughs> You know, I keep telling you that. Yeah. 
Okay, so egocentrism obliterates the thought that the Buddha nature exists equally in ourselves and others. Yeah, I have more of it. Yeah, that's what self-centered, you know. Yeah, well, maybe, okay, the Buddha, first we think, well, the Buddha nature doesn't exist in all sentient beings, but I have it. But, you know, Donnie really lost out on that one. You know, no Buddha nature. Or, you know, then you go, well, okay, maybe everybody has Buddha nature, but I have more of it. <laughs> or my Buddha nature is better than your Buddha nature. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so preoccupied with our own concerns, we are unable to generate the love and compassion that regard ourselves and others as equal. This, in turn, interferes with generating bodhicitta. Wow. Have you ever thought about that? You know, that this... Because we all believe in equality, don't we? We and we think everybody's equal, but when we have the self-centeredness, we don't really think everybody's equal, do we? You know, we don't at all. Okay, let's continue. But everybody is equal in having the Buddha nature. And one person doesn't have more of it than the other person. <laughs> okay, understanding Buddha nature counteracts these five faults. Okay, when sentient beings hear about Buddha nature, so to contradict, to uh, con yeah, contradict the first uh, factor, which was discouragement. Yeah, joy, not discouragement, arises in our mind because we know dukkha can be overcome. So if we, you know, have some uh, belief based on, on reasoning that the Buddha nature exists, then we feel joyful and not discouraged. Okay, to overcome the second one, which is arrogant contempt for those we consider inferior. So in place of contempt, yeah, having uh, understanding of Buddha nature uh, arises respect for the Buddha and sentient beings who have this great potential. So can you imagine how much that would change our outlook on the world? I mean, not only respecting the Buddha, but then when we looked around at all these people, oh, we'd, we would respect them because they have the Buddha nature. Yeah, they have that potential. One day they will become Buddhas. Yeah, imagine looking, you know, looking at the world like that. Imagine you read the news, and you and you're reading it through the eyes of all these people have the Buddha nature. And then it would be very, you know, it'd be hard to have contempt for them. And it would be it would be hard to to really believe that this world is, you know, the world's in bad shape. But you wouldn't say oh, everything is bad and everything's going down the tubes. Yeah, there would still be a lot of hope, a lot of optimism. 
Okay, and then for the third and fourth points, the third one was distorted conception. The fourth was denigrating the two nature. Okay, so that one is overcome by uh, analytical wisdom that correctly views reality. Uh, and that wisdom abolishes superimpositions and denigration of the actual nature, replacing it with liberated wisdom. Superimposition means that you're projecting something that isn't there. So that would be the view of inherent existence. You're projecting something that isn't there. Denigration means that you're uh, saying that some, you're denigrating, you're putting down something that does exist by saying it doesn't exist. So that's a nihilistic view. Okay, so there we have our usual two extremes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so instead of falling to those two extremes, if we understand the Buddha nature, we'll have liberating wisdom. And then to overcome self-centeredness, yeah, understanding the Buddha nature would uh, give us great love for all sentient beings, uh, which overcomes the confining self-preoccupation by opening our hearts to others. Yeah. Does opening your heart to others feel liberating to you, or is it scary? Yeah? Is it scary? We don't want to really open our hearts to others and, re and look at their potential and see them as equal to us and trust them. Yeah. Do, we, do we really want to have compassion or is that stretching our mind too far? Because I got to first take care of me. Yeah, I am most important. Right? And they say, if you don't take care of yourself, who's going to take care of you? So it's good to be self-centered, you know. And being self-centered, then you compete with others, which is really good because then everybody does their best to win and to be the best. And that's how human nature uh, and human society progresses is through this competition of everybody themselves wanting to be the best. Hmm? I mean, this, when you study economics, that's what they tell you, yeah? I mean, what I'm saying is just very common knowledge that people who are wise in our society say, the, you know, say these things. But, okay, but the thing is, if you really have the Buddha nature, yeah, I mean, competing with others to, to be on top and progressing and saying, I'm benefiting society so much because I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm work for this AI company and we're competing with the other AI company and we're developing all these fantastic far out things that are going to solve, you know, really help medical research and take us to the moon and back from the moon and, 
and I'm working on this, and, you know, look, I'm contributing to society. Yeah, it sounds good, doesn't it? Do you have love and compassion for sentient beings? What's your motivation for contributing to society? Is it because you really care about others? Or because you want to win the Nobel Peace Prize for whatever? Or at least get some award from your university? Okay. Okay. So... Great love, so we will have great love for all sentient beings overcoming the confining self-preoccupation. Self-preoccupation is confining, isn't it? It's scary. It may be scary to open our heart to others, but it's more painful being self-preoccupied and just everything revolving around me. How do I look? Are they noticing me? Am I contributing? Am I succeeding or am I a failure? Are they recognizing what I do or are they, they, they blaming me for things I don't know? How do I fit in this group? I don't know if I fit in. Maybe I should do this and then more people would like me. I don't know what people think about me. And, you know, oh, and then anyway, my health is so terrible. And I have all these problems. My little toe is just killing me all the time. And then my little fingers started acting up. And then (laughs) I have a stomach ache. And, you know, and everything, my whole body's falling apart. And I can't concentrate because, you know, my body's falling apart. If only, uh, you know, I were young again, but, you know, I'm not, and the whole thing's useful, useless. I'm just getting old. I'm more forgetful. What was I saying? <laughs> you know, self-preoccupation is hell, isn't it? Just all the time, just all this anxiety. Yeah? How do I look? Do I look good? You know, all those young monastics, perfectly pure pure skin, you know, I have barnacles all over, you know, and then I have freckles all over, and I have a scar here from when I fell on an ashtray when I was a kid. I have another scar up here from driving my tricycle into the back of my parents' car when it was parked in the driveway. I was three years old. And, uh, you know, oh, how do I look? You know, all these people look better. They're, you know, they do, they can do all these things that I can't. I'm just, you know, sitting here and, and, yeah, all day long, all day long. Me, 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 me. You would think that we would get sick and tired of it. Yeah, you would think. Sometimes in retreats, I've done it before, where, you know, because in a retreat, there's usually something that's bugging you that you go round and around about most of the retreat. Okay, so it was a group retreat, and everybody wrote out their problem and what they're going round and around about, folded it up, put it put it in a bowl, and then every person had to take 
out. And, you know, now you don't have your problem anymore. You have this person's problem. So in your meditation, whenever you get, you, you start worrying about yourself or you get distracted, this is what you get anxious about. Okay, so you are now the other person with this person's problem. So now this is what you think about. Yeah? And <laughs> it was very interesting. Some of you were here. Yeah? Do you remember what the conclu- what happened? Yeah? What happened? <laughs> it was boring. What a, it's like this person is going round and round about this stupid problem. You know, they're getting divorced. Everybody gets divorced. Why? <laughs> Why are they so worried about this and worried about that? And you know, they're just just you know, just be nice to the people in your life and then they'll be nice back. My um the person's problem I had, their stepson had just been murdered in South America. So thinking about that problem mm-hmm. um, made anything that came up for me non-existent, really. Yeah. That was a really... Yeah. Something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Had us do this in email a number of years ago, too. Mm-hmm. But it can sort of backfire, too, because you get someone else's problem that's really boring, and then you think, my problems are still more important. These, my, my problems really count. Just not- <laughs> my problems are interesting. <laughs> I've already gotten through the divorce thing. I'm on to a new problem. Now I have a new boyfriend, you know. <laughs> so what do I do, you know? It was... I read something in New York Times today. This man wrote an article, and his wife got early-onset dementia or Alzheimer's. And she she just went downhill real fast. And so she was about, you know, starting when she was like 59, 60. And just she was gone. Before she got so bad, she said to him, find somebody else. And he said, no, 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 you know, I'm going to take care of you. So she's going downhill. Sometimes she recognizes him, sometimes not. Anyway, he meets somebody else, and he's he's still taking care of his wife. He's very dedicated to her and doesn't want to just leave her. But he's also in love with somebody else. And it was Thanksgiving, and so he had his wife and his girlfriend both at the Thanksgiving meal. (laughs) That was an interesting one. Meditate on that when you get distracted. (laughs) You know, does your wife recognize this as a girlfriend? Or what what does the girlfriend think of, of your... You know, still caring about your wife. And what about the kids? You know, because the kids from their marriage and and the kids from the girlfriend had before, you know, they're all together. Very interesting, huh? Yeah, that'll keep your mind busy. (laughs) You won't fall asleep when you're distracted by that. Okay. So... 
In short, eliminating these faults clears the way to generating bodhicitta and engaging in the six perfections, especially meditative stability and wisdom, which are essential to overcome the two obscurations. In this way, Maitreya clarifies that the description of Buddha nature in the sublime continuum does not contradict that of the second turning, but speaks of it in it from a different perspective. He also elucidates the purpose for teaching the Tathagatagarbha in the third turning. It is to help sentient beings overcome the five faults and to have enthusiasm and determination to practice the path and attain full awakening. Okay. So there's this custom that when you finish something, you go back and you start at the beginning again. So, um, I could start with the preface, but I wrote that. Better we start. His Holiness wrote the introduction. Okay. So, as with all activities, our attitude and motivation for learning and practicing the Buddha Dharma affect the value of our actions. Keeping six factors in mind will enable you to have a beneficial motivation. See, first thing in the book, what's the Buddha talk, what's his holiness talking about? Motivation. Okay, first, see yourself as a sick person who wants to recover. See, I told you my little tone, my, my little finger, my stomach, you know. Yeah, I told you I was sick. Yeah, that, that part I can do. <laughs> okay, so see yourself as a sick, per, sick person who wants to recover. Our illness is cyclic existence and the dukkha, unsatisfactory circumstances, that permeate cyclic existence. Oh, it's not my little toe and my little finger and my stomach ache. But it includes them. Dukkha includes being subject to birth, aging, sickness, and death under the influence of afflictions and karma, as well as not getting what we want, being separated from what we love, and encountering problems we don't want. True, isn't it? Seeing ourselves as ill, we will approach the teachings with sincerity and receptivity. Second, Regard the teacher as a kind doctor who correctly diagnoses our illness and prescribes the medicine to cure it. Our samsara is rooted in mental afflictions, the chief of which is ignorance that misapprehends the ultimate nature of, reality, of phenomena. Although we want happiness, our minds are continually overwhelmed by attachment, anger, and confusion that cause us misery here and now and create the karma for future lives. Okay. Third, the, are these sounding familiar to you? Good. Third, see teachings as medicine to cure our illness. The Buddha prescribed the medicine of the three higher trainings in ethical conduct, concentration, and wisdom, and the medicine of bodhicitta and the six perfections. Generosity, ethical conduct, fortitude, joyous effort, meditative stability, and wisdom. Fourth, understand that practicing the teachings is the method to heal. 
When we are ill, we naturally respect the doctor, trust the medicine, and want to take it, even if it doesn't taste so good. Okay? If we second-guess the doctor or complain about the medicine, we won't take it. Similarly, if we don't respect the Buddha and the Dharma, we won't practice. Likewise, if we have a prescription but don't fill it, or fill it but don't take the medicine, we won't recover. We must, must make an effort to learn and practice the Dharma and not simply correct, collect statues, texts, and prayer beads. Curing the illness is a collaborative process between doctor and patients. We must both do our parts. Okay. So we start reading again as a uh, auspicious thing to again go through the the book. Okay. Questions, comments, anything? So, venerable, before we say the prayers, uh-huh. I was asked to just for thirty seconds to say something how important this book has been to the community. Um, His Holiness. The the Dharma is so distilled when he when he teaches. I mean, he's got it in his very core of his being. And for those of us in the community, maybe beyond this, we need you to unpack it for us. And since April 9th of two thousand and twenty one, you have been unpacking this book almost three years. Really, and that has been the treasure, and it's helped us, I think, at some level to understand samsara, maybe more clearly, where we are, what our situation is, nirvana to see the possibility of freeing ourselves and the step-by-step process, and then this incredible beyond-beyond Buddha nature that is kind of the ticket to Buddhahood in a way that now our work begins to go back and look over and to study and to think about it. But this book has been and then having the four establishments of mindfulness and retreat last year and the four noble truths this year to just complement mm-hmm. the whole unpacking of this book. So we yeah. want to, as a small token, is we wanted to do our our Thanksgiving mandala to offer to you in gratitude for unpacking this incredible book. Okay. There are Seven more books. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's seven more volumes. For 21 years. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 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 okay. Yeah, okay. So three, three, three times seven is 21. Yeah. Huh? And then we got to start over again and do all, all 10 again. You okay. should just teach every day. Just go for Yeah. I would, I would like to get us to the point where we had, we're able to have teachings every day yes. as a community. It's really valuable when you can study a text and it's not just once a week, but it's like every day. What, do we, what clauses do we need to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the people from Singapore should just quit their job, come and live here for the next five years, study this every day. Yeah. <laughs> once a week. Yeah, you say it into the <laughs> microphone so that they hear it. <laughs> 
Okay, Singaporean. She's yeah, no Singaporeans. You know, we can't just have the teaching every week. I want to highly recommend that you should quit your jobs, tell your kids to I don't know, go on holiday or whatever, and you should move here. And then we study the Library of Wisdom Compassion every day for the next minimally five to ten years, every day. Okay, very good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, that'd be good, huh? Okay. We'll have to build another building. Oh. oh. <laughs> no, it, we're, we're not building another building. They'll build the other building. <laughs> Come here. Have teachings every day and build another building. <laughs> they can sit on the tent outside and we'll put the PA system. <laughs> oh. Okay. <laughs>